the biggest lesson that Rwanda has emulated or blueprinted from Singapore is to build the national competitive advantage. In Africa, we have great legislators because there is no economy that can function without electricity. Hi, Jenez. Welcome to yet another episode of Access Genie. I'm your host, Ansela Nombeo, and welcome to yet another episode that is thrilling. Today, I am joined by Jordan Seke. He is an author, a business coach, a speaker, an ICT specialist, and today he's going to talk to us about Africa and how we can build the African continent together. We're coming to you live from the Cliffside Boutique Getaway, which is a spectacular secluded getaway for business and pleasure right in the heart of Northcliffe. Thank you so much, Georgian, for joining us. Thank you, ma'am, for having me today. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because you've done a lot of research around entrepreneurship and business in Africa and particularly Rwanda and Ethiopia. But you grew up and you were born in the DRC. How is life like growing up in Congo and how is it different from now your life and what you see in South Africa? Yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, people always confuse. I was not born in the DRC. Oh, okay. I'm born in Congo, Brazzaville. Oh. The small Congo, the French Congolese uh, state. Life in Congo until 1997, where the civil war comes into our pictures. It was quite nice. We were having a very good life. No load shedding. Access to electricity and education was there for us. And uh, living in Pointe Noire, which is the economic powerhouse of the Congo Republic of Congo, it was uh, a dream to become uh, a petrochemistry engineer because of the multinational petroleum company that we have there. Among them, there is a total energy. You have your NI from Italy and other Aliberton from the US and, and many others. So I was not even dreaming one day that I will be staying away from my family, from my roots, and from many friends. But life happened. And that is the biggest lesson that I've learned throughout the years of my experience. And growing up is such a mission that moving from that life where we were all dreaming to become maybe an engineer, making a lot of money, driving big cars, and in 1997, uh, in 2000, and one or 2000, let me put it that way, dreams have to change. And it happened that I had to move away from Congo to go to the DRC, the neighboring country, for my tertiary education. So when I went there, it was not a much of a difference because we kind of like shared the very same culture, uh, settings and all those things. It was quite easy for me to integrate and all do everything. And it happened that I completely changed my field of study. From Congo, when I was leaving Congo to DRC, I was doing, I was studying uh, mechanical engineering. And when I went to the DRC, they were yet to introduce or launch the new program in biomedical engineering. And looking at the landscape of economy at the time, I realized that healthcare will be the, big, the next big thing. 
So I moved to do biomedical engineering with the hope that I will be working for the UN, like you as a UN ambassador, but to be like uh, an international uh, workforce for the UN, be sent elsewhere to work, but to fulfill the purpose of creating that positive impact in people's lives. But things did not go that way. And I found myself after graduating for my engineering degree into the cornerstone of uh, many things where the 21st century were knocking at our doors. And I was not able to speak English as I'm speaking today. And I, was, I had only a fairly knowledge about ICT and computers. But you will agree with me that biomedical equipment or hospital equipment are full embedded with ICT. So that is where my interest into ICT got born. And when I moved to South Africa, it was purely to learn English. That was my plan. After learning English and I become a bit fluent, I wanted to return back home. And my mom asked me, told me that, why I should not consider carrying on with my education. Because at the end, I promised her that I will study until I have my PhD or my doctorate. So that is what happened from Congo to South Africa yeah. in 2005. Yeah. And if you were to go back to that young man in Congo Brazzaville growing up today, what would you say to him today? seeing what life has happened and that things have changed and where you are now, what should you say to that little boy? I will say to that little boy, quoting uh, Stuart uh, Scott, who said, don't downgrade your dream to fit the realities. Rather upgrade your conviction to match your destiny. And I think that little boy had a dream to become a great man. Maybe he didn't know in which field in particular that dream will become true. But here I am. And I think moving forward with life and with the construct that I always believe, that's why I intentionally wear my own shirt, where I speak about inspiring and empowering. Who do I inspire? I inspire people who cannot reach out to me. People who cannot be with me like you, are, you and I sitting today and chatting. So that is the people that I, I basically inspire. But empowering, I, I empower people through coaching, through mentorship, through sponsorship, through multiple forms of opportunity that I have in, with me that I cannot fulfill as a person that I give it away to those people. To those people. And that's really, really interesting and, and important because we are, if other people around us can empower us, right, we become who we, we can be um, with those kind of opportunities. In your book, you talk a lot about Rwanda and Ethiopia when you're talking about the growth opportunities in Africa and how we can use technology to grow as a continent. And I know that uh, we talk a lot in general now in our conversations about how Rwanda has, has, has grown so much, especially at the backdrop of the history that it has with the, with, the, with the genocide. What individual strategies have you seen between Rwanda and Ethiopia that you'd say this, these are the strategies that they're individually using and this is why they're growing so faster compared to other countries on the continent? 
allow me to put a disclaimer. <laughs> and I have to be frank with our listener and our audience. Rwanda and Ethiopia may not be the perfect example. But for me, back there in 2020, when I was releasing my book, I felt like they were a very good example. I still think they are. Yeah, in many ways. Yeah, in many well, ways. They've got their challenges, but yes. they really are. People yeah. still debate about it. And I don't want to be also offend people because of the political conflict between Rwanda and the DRC, where I went for my tertiary education. I want to be a much scientific than political. I don't care whatever people think. The good things about these two countries is because economic growth or progress started from the top. And those countries have been blessed from the last two decades with competent and technocratic leaders who have embraced change and economic progress as their vision for them to transform their countries. Back before 19, uh, 2017, Ethiopia, for instance, was not a very democratic country. Journalists like yourself will have been arrested and put in jail, especially if you don't write according to the line of uh, the power or the position, the leading party in the country. But with the arrival of that uh, prime minister, a lot of things changed. And they were like, let open our country to technology and let be innovative to move forward. The same also happened with Rwanda. After the genocide and what Rwanda has done so far, it's quite amazing, it's inspiring. But what in particular those leaders have done is amazing. In Rwanda, Rwanda I think is the fourth country when it comes to women parity, women empowerment. And every minister in Rwanda signed a performance agreement at the beginning of the year. So the performance is checked against all their deliverable to keep each and everyone accountable. And when you go to Ethiopia, Ethiopia like Rwanda are landlocked countries. They don't have access to uh, the sea like any other countries, like in South Africa, where we have, you either go to Durban or Cape Town, you still have access to the sea. So the, the Ethiopian government decided to open up their country, bringing in, building infrastructure, the railroad that through Djibouti, that gives them access to the sea. Through those innovative ideas and plan, this country are now leading the way in terms of infrastructure development and uh, ICT infrastructure, that is the key for them. Yeah, And for sure, and I like that you put that disclaimer because obviously the, where there's good, there's also bad. You can't do everything all at the same time. But talking from an entrepreneurship perspective and economical growth perspective, I think those two countries are really leading the change in what we're trying to see now and what we as young people of the continent are hoping for, right? And I think that the 
president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, has said that he wants Rwanda to be the next Singapore. And it's something that gets thrown out there a lot. And I think if we look back um, in terms of how the world has just progressed, some people would argue that East Asia is not what it was 100 years ago. Not at all. For example, the 1900s, I would say, where... The, the period of Great Britain, that's when they were really ruling. And then when you look at uh, uh, um, the, the 1800s were Great Britain, 1900s were more USA. Mm -hmm. And then now in the 2000s, you'll see East Asia really coming up and Singapore really leading that charge and rebuilding especially from nothing. It's all about infrastructure and technology and some of the world's wealthiest people are now living and, and, and residing in Singapore in itself. What kind of lessons do you think Rwanda is really taking from Singapore as a blueprint towards their own success and change? Yeah, thank you very much. And uh, like, let me steal word from your mouth about the, the persona of Paul Kagame. And uh, also when you said where there is good, there's also bad stuff. And we have different leadership styles. And I always say to people, we must allow each and every leader to display and walk through the vision according to their leadership style. And I think the biggest lesson that Rwanda has emulated or blueprinted from Singapore is to build the national competitive advantage. Rwanda has positioned itself as the tech hub of our, the African continent. And they've put a lot of emphasis on science, technology, and infrastructure. Mm. Trust me, foreign direct investors will not come to build your infrastructure. Mm. I think that is the foundation that were laid down by the Rwandan government nationally mm -hmm. to attract the foreign direct investment yeah. into the land. So the blueprint can be called like the national, uh, what do you call it, competitive advantage mm -hmm. plan that the Rwandan built. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And you, you talk about them really building this type of tech infrastructure. How have they really done it if you were to pick some examples that maybe other countries can even learn from. I think other young entrepreneurs who have relations even in government would want to go and pitch to our countries or leaders. What can they pitch and what has really been done practically to really foster that growth? What has been done, the country itself through the government, through the policy implementation mm. is open to business. Mm. They've given the lean way to everybody to come with an idea. And then uh, the government, although is limited resources like anywhere in the world, but the government has been prompt to assist where possible. The government is there to make sure that your idea don't get stolen, to protect your IP as an idea. And the government also assists you to launch that product or whatever the service might be. And I think that is where a lot of countries are failing. Trust me, people must not quote me wrong. In Africa, we have great legislators. Mm. People who can write from the bottom of their heart to address problems and issues that we're having as African. But the enforcement of those laws, that is where the problem is. 
the application of those policies. That is where the problem is. And before even looking into Rwanda and uh, Ethiopia and all those things, in 2020, when South Africa were hosting the World Cup, people were talking about South Africa like an external country from the African continent. They were always saying that South Africa and Sub-Saharan African countries because South Africa stood out um, in the cream among the 54 countries that uh, constitute Africa. But what happened? Even before 2010, until today, we are living the consequence of corruption. Corrupted leaders among ourselves. So they can have a very nice political speech and discourse out there, but the implementation is nowhere to be seen. Contrary to Paul Kagame, to speak about him, because he's, he's the guy who has transformed Rwanda, is, I don't know, I cannot speak about corruption uh, with him, but he has a vision that he put out there. Either you are with him or you are not with him, but don't interfere with his plan. And people will also say that he's a dictator. And I think dictatorship work for African. And it's been working for African. Some way. It's debatable. Yeah. But I see that yeah. it's been working for us. Yeah. So the guy has made sure that the vision is understood and is carried out by other people who understand and have embraced of embedded the vision. And that's why things are working. Yeah. I, I definitely think that there is some dictatorship element there without without a doubt because when we talk politics I, I mean we'll debate the whole day a, a, around what he's doing there but what I really love is what he's doing economically so one of the things that he has done is to allow any human being from anywhere to be able to enter Rwanda without a visa. If you've ever applied for a visa, you know how terrible it is, the anxiety, am I going to get it? Do I have this paper? Did I answer the questions right? Do I have all of that? So there's a lot of roadblocks that exist that deter us from even traveling in other countries. But, but by just removing that visa requirement is opened himself up to more opportunities. Yet other countries will be worried about, oh, will we have illegal Ill immigrants? We'll have this problem and that problem. And I think he's seeing it from a visionary perspective to say, if more people are coming here, it means we're developing more and we're creating more opportunities. So we just need to keep up with the influx of people that will be coming in and, and just grow in that way, which is really, really inspiring. inspiring. What role do you think entrepreneurs can play in this kind of growth that we're seeing in Rwanda and Ethiopia, and that is being an entrepreneur from any part of the continent. You see, uh, let's go back to history. And uh, I think America has been built by foreign. Mm. There is no American who can claim that is a true American. Mm. If you check, he has African blood, European blood somewhere, mm. somehow. And Singapore also, you can travel to Singapore without a visa. You just pay your ticket and then you fly to Singapore airline and then you, get, you are there. And they, but also, free visa does not give you lenient to be there for forever. They give you the opportunity to be there for maybe 90 days for some. There will be 30 days for others and 60 days for the, the rest. So with those uh, days that you spend there, remember you're going to be spending money. Because you, 
maybe you don't know anyone there who can accommodate you. You will spend money at the hotel, which also make the ec circular economy working for, for them. You will be able to partner with right people to empower, either be there as a, a representative of your service, but even you moving your services from wherever you come from Africa today will be making a very big difference. And if you go to the Ethiopia up there, Ethiopia is the only country that was not colonized. And they've done a lot of stuff through foreign direct investment. Today, Ethiopians produce wine through castle. And they produce coffee has been, been well known for Ethiopians. And today, Ethiopians are opening their country to more foreign direct investment. Big names like Gaze, your HM, and all of them are now putting their manufacturing uh, uh, plant there because of cheap labor. Yeah, where there's good, there's mm -hmm. also bad. Mm -hmm. We will talk about it mm -hmm. later on mm -hmm. during the conversation. Mm -hmm. But I just want to highlight the fact that when they open those borders, mm -hmm. people are bringing money, mm -hmm. capital investment are coming in. And that is giving job to locals and also giving opportunity to people to see what they can do or what the outside world has been doing for long. Why cannot we do it in our countries? Yeah. If you were to be the president of South Africa today and you have 10 years in office to rebuild the country and really make us even more competitive, what would you do? What would be on your agenda? Wow. That is a very nice question, and, but tough one. Yeah. There is a difference between a political leader and a state leader. That's why we keep on blaming our state leaders once they take office. Mm. Outside there, when they're not yet on that seat, they make big promises. But when they come to that seat, the realities of things, they make them change their blueprint or their vision. But I think for South Africa, I will focus on three things. Access to water, access to a stable and sustainable electricity and access to education. And the rest will just be coming and falling like uh, bananas or mangoes from a tree. Why those three? Because there is no economy that can function without electricity. Water is very important. It's a basic need for a human being to live. Education you will see in most countries, the education system are producing a mismatch skill than the market is expecting. Mm. And then that is why you see there is no the, uh, economic growth. Mm. Because we're producing a lot of graduates, myself coming from a university mm. perspective, we produce a lot of graduates. But are they relevant in the today market? Mm. I'm not against uh, history. We must have people who can speak about history. But why is that history have a lot of students? Because it's easy 
Mm. Or because you become a tick box, a person goes there and say that I was also once a university mm. student. Mm. That is not what we want. Mm. We want people who will come out from those institutions, from educational institutions, to create jobs, to create more opportunities. Mm. Not job seekers. Mm. We are tired mm. of job seekers. That's why the unemployment rate in South Africa is quite high. People coming to varsity, studying, doing great stuff, expecting to be employed. What? What is going on with us? I think we're missing something here. Yeah, when we need to create more employers than creating um, employees within the space, which is really, really true. Also, because it, it will mean that what we get taught is different because now we have to be taught business and how to run businesses and what's required for you to be able to run your own business or, or your own enterprise. I'll throw the same question. If you were the president of Zimbabwe for 10 years, what would be your top agenda? Sure. Zimbabwe is quite a very different uh, story because back in the years, Zimbabwe was the basket of Africa. Agriculture was the, the thing. And I think agriculture moving forward, agriculture remained the thing. Food security is what is killing our continent at large. Being north, south, east, center, west, everyone is crying about food security. And Zimbabwe, in terms of education, they were very good. And you can see that even in South Africa, there is no institution, shining institution, that does not have Zimbabwean in their board in South Africa. Because South Africa is benefiting from those skill sets that are neglected by Zimbabwean government because of political gain and all those things. But in the case of Zimbabwe, I will flip. Still, electricity and water will still be there because those are basic needs trying them to be more active in the workforce that we create in the country. But we will go back to the drawing board of agriculture. Because the competence is there. The land is there. Why don't we put our effort in what we do best? And from there, draw our weaknesses and identify room where we can also improve or put some uh, investment to to grow our economy. Mm. So that will be my thing. Yeah, that's amazing. And through your research that you've done uh, between Rwanda and Ethiopia or any other country, what business has excited you the most in terms of what they're doing and what that would mean for the continent? Because I know that we don't have a business from Africa that stands as one of the top 500 businesses in the world. Which one excites you and gives you that potential? on about the reverse innovation mm. and uh, people have to kind of like look into the reverse innovation mm. for the past few years if there is something that has stuck into my mind is the MPESA mm. the MPESA uh, invention or innovation let's put it that way uh, has been very good mm. Since 2007, that M-Pesa concept is still thriving in the African continent. Mm. 
and I think the M-Pesa is the uh, the source of mobile money mm. in the African continent. The M-Pesa is the source of inclusivity when it comes to banking mm. and payment access to the African continent. Because mm. we suffer from uh, categorization of population of people in our yeah. continent. Yeah. We have uh, the so-called, please forgive my English, no the black middle class, mm -hmm. <laughs> which are defined the black graduate mm -hmm. people who are hanging around here in Johannesburg and elsewhere in South Africa looking for a job instead of creating one. Mm -hmm. So with those categorization in our continent, we find ourselves in the position where we have to basically even when we talk about innovation, we have to respond to the immediate problem. And the immediate problem, we have a lot of unbanked people in the continent. Informal economy are thriving. But I, I will shock you. When I went to Brazil in 2017, I think, I went to buy was mango or apple something mm -hmm. like that to the lady at the corner she was having uh, a small uh, spaza mm -hmm. table there feeling good mm -hmm. and i realized that i didn't have cash on me then he said to me yes buy we have a cup you pay with using the car mm -hmm. i was impressed mm -hmm. because brazil is an emerging market it's not developed mm -hmm. So even from the corner of the street, you can go buy banana using your card. Mm. The cash-free kind of transaction. Mm. So for me, if there is a technology, uh, something innovation that stood out among all of them, mm. is the MPS. For sure. For sure. If you are enjoying this conversation and you haven't subscribed to our channel yet, what are you waiting for? Please go and press the subscribe button below so that you can be the first to know when new conversations are dropped each week. So if you were to be a traveler visiting Rwanda or Ethiopia in 10 years from now, what would you want to see there? Hmm. 10 years from now, I want to see a serious adoption of AI because that is what is trending. I didn't want to talk about it earlier on on your question about, about it because for me is just an important innovation like other innovation that we have uh, on the African continent. Uh, for me, I want to see the adoption of AI, the usage of AI, in such a way that people or learners have mastered the usage of AI. I want to see uh, blockchain moving forward because of the transition of FinTech and all those things, having more uh, access to payment and transaction without a lot of problem. And I want to see urban agriculture developing. We spoke earlier on about food security. Why urban uh, agriculture? The vertical agriculture have shown some uh, progress. 
so we can live some plant can go grow just from the natural air we don't need a lot of watering and all those mm. things so if those countries can starting now to build a 10 years plan making sure that urban agriculture become the thing people living in those new buildings that have been growing up in Addis Ababa mm. and Kigali and all places to make sure that there's a space for them to plant even their mm. tomatoes people start doing eating organic food from their own garden mm. and uh, I think those three will make me happy and will keep me at peace. Even the day that I will not be around uh, for this world, mm. even in my tomb, mm. in my coffin there, I will be able to turn and enjoy. And enjoy it. What is happening yeah. in our and, continent. And food security is really a big one because for a continent that has so much land, we just import way too much food than we should be, meaning that our our resources are not being used in the right way and we're not really concentrating on things that we should be concentrating on because we should be the largest exporters of everything because <laughs> we've got so much land where we can do so much that that is really, really important. It's a space that's also very close to my heart. I am trying to get into that space, into the food space and the food tech space specifically. So it's now my, my happy space. I know that you also do a lot of business coaching for entrepreneurs and executives, etc. What kind of mistakes do you see a lot of young startup founders make that are detrimental to, to their success? Hmm. Before I come back uh, to that question, let me go back to food security because you, you mentioned that. And the, among the problems that uh, these two countries are facing, Rwanda, for instance, is having a problem of demographic density. They have too much people mm -hmm. for a small country. Mm -hmm. They don't have enough Arab mm -hmm. land. That's why you can see people, scientific people like us, we understand that the war mm -hmm. between Rwanda and the DRC is not political. Mm -hmm. It's just the land. Mm -hmm. Rwandan want the land mm -hmm. for them to uh, grow their agriculture mm -hmm. uh, program and all those things. Mm -hmm. If you go to Ethiopia, they have land, mm -hmm. no rain. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you are away, people are aware of the, the big project that uh, Ethiopia and uh, Egypt have been fighting about the Nile mm. River for them to bring the Nile River to, to go through there and have enough electricity power, energy power, because mm. we need energy mm. to transform. Mm. You see now, we're going back to the problem, the basic access that we don't have. We have the Arab land everywhere in Africa, mm. but we don't have electricity. Our transformation can happen. Now coming back to your question about the mistake of startup and all those things, I will just uh, name or list four or five. The first one, startup make a biggest mistake by investing into the wrong things. The second mistake, they rush too quickly to hiring and onboarding people. The third mistake, they make wrong partnership with investors. In order for you to partner with a potential investor, it must not only be in terms of money, 
Yes, it's called investors because you want to grab something from his pocket. Mm. But that investor must believe in your dream. If he doesn't believe in your dream, keep leave him with his money. Don't entertain him because it will come and destroy your vision mm. and your, your business. Mm. The fourth mistake is that people, uh, entrepreneur or startup, are afraid to make mistakes and learn from it. So those are the four mistakes, big mistakes that is recurring into the life of entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. A lot of people with great idea are now mm -hmm. sleeping. Mm -hmm. They've closed down their shop mm -hmm. and now they're seeking for employment elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And they are willing to go and fulfill another person's dream than pursuing their own dream. Mm -hmm. And that is quite a pity. Yeah. yeah, that's why you see in Africa, in the continent all over Africa, we have more incubators than startup to speak. Because we understand that we still have a problem, issue with this entrepreneur. They have good idea. They don't know how to keep their IPs. They don't know how to launch their own product. So they have to go through this incubator's program to help them and give them the trust that they're lacking in their own idea. Mm. You see? Yeah, for sure. And I like that you're talking a lot around innovation. And I think sometimes people don't even realize where they fall into the line because you can be an inventor and not an innovator because sometimes inventors cannot bring that product or the idea into market and actually make it commercialized. Yeah. Yet an innovator can easily do that and yeah. a disruptor can disrupt and not see the money idea around it. And an innovator always has to come into play to make all of those things commercially viable. But also, you need to have some sort of balance, right, between innovation or invention or disruption and what would really work now and today in your business. Because you can't just be changing things all the time and then it's not making financial sense for the business at that particular time for, for the right growth in some aspect. How would you advise people to reach sort of the right equilibrium to say, this is the right time for us to innovate, for us to, to, to disrupt, and this is not the right time to do that? Yeah. Speaking of business model, it's quite... Uh a very good topic and is a hot one. Uh, even in the business arena, in the varsity and all those things. But so that we give people context of what the equilibrium that we want to find in is, we have to start by defining each and every concept. I think innovation is wrongly perceived, if I may put it that way. Innovation is not only something new. Mm, definitely not. It's not uh, something that can also disrupt. Mm. You leave the disruptor there, you leave the inventor there, still they can be called innovators. Mm. But you can also be an innovator in your own account mm. through the improvement of efficiency, through the improvement of service delivery. Mm. Speaking of service delivery, how many times the government everywhere in Africa have fell on us? Because a simple paper that is where you are waiting for you to move on with your things in life can take months. And sometimes you have to call them 
and the paper is sitting on the the document is sitting on someone's desk but is not making any move to address or sign it mm. for you to run with your show, on show. Mm. And now, when it comes to business model, first of all, people, in order for you to get sure, make sure that you're having a very good business model, you have to understand your market, the market size of your thing. You have to understand uh, the competition, the market that you want to enter, how the competition is there. And also, your target customer group. So, if you understand those three elements, we can put it in the triangle for you to assess a very business model. Then the optimal business model for you will be a business model that monetizes your project or service, the business model that brings value to your targeted group. I know value can be misunderstood and misdefined. What I perceive as value is not necessarily what you will perceive as value. But as a business, each and business exists, they have a core mission. So that can be your value, what you give to your customer. And beyond that value that you give to them, you have to think of sustainability. A lot of business come and go. A lot of business emulate some business model but they cannot sustain to that. So you have to think about that. Sustainability for years to come. And how you will maintain your competition uh, advantage into that particular market. That those, when you find those tune into your business model search, I think you'll be fine and to navigate anything. Certainly, and sustainability sometimes is something that a lot of entrepreneurs forgot, forget to think about when they're starting out and how they'll be able to grow with the times because things change all the time. You can't just be stagnant. You need to always be thinking about trends that are happening and how you can improve and grow and be ahead of any turn that you can find within the sector that you are operating in. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. So when we end this podcast, we like to play a game called Fast Five. I give you five questions that you can answer in a word or a sentence. Are you ready for it? So awesome. Let's do this. So the first one is what are you most what tech trend are you most excited about right now in Africa? AI. AI. AI, 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 I love that. And what's your favorite African innovation over the past five years? I know you mentioned M-Pesa, but let's, let's bring it to maybe something that happened five years ago. Then uh, allow me to talk about uh, the Halo Solar mm -hmm. in Ethiopia, where... Do I, uh, do, am I allowed yes, to you are, yes, context to that? Yes, you are, you may. The Halo Solar is an innovative idea or startup that is exist in Ethiopia is to respond to the rural development area. So they have uh, some devices with two years warranty to give to the population, that to give you some light and uh, some power to charge your phone. But those, is scalable. Scalability is also something very important in every business that we want to be. Because sustainability work together with scalability because of the change that you mentioned earlier on. So, yeah, yeah, certainly. And if you were to pick one word that describes the impact of African fintech, uh, specifically on the continent, what would you be? 
it's going to be revolution. Mm. Can you expand on that? I love it. <coughs> the, the fintech, I'm a cryptopreneur. Mm. Uh, <coughs> the revolution that the fintech are bringing, the inclusivity. Remember, back in the years, for you to have a bank account, you must be earning a certain amount of money. You must be in a particular threshold mm. in the economy for you to have a bank account. Mm. But fintech bring, uh, came in, destroy all those walls between customer or the population and yeah. the financial institution. Yeah. I can be here in the next 10 minutes if I can send someone money in Rwanda or Ethiopia. It's going to take me two minutes without the intervention of any bank that you know. Because people under, uh, misunderstand the transaction. If you look at the evolution of money to where we are today, if you want to do a transaction, a simple transaction between South Africa and Zimbabwe, just here, in the past it was taking a lot of days. <coughs> with the fintech, with the revolution that I mentioned earlier on, you are able to do it in less than 10 minutes because of the peer-to-peer -peer transaction. Yeah. No financial institution is involved. Yeah. We are more in control than, than we've ever been, yeah. which, is, which is really amazing. And if Africa were to be a startup as a continent, or a startup, what would our slogan be? The sunrise where tradition meets innovation. Oh, please say that again. Love that. The sunrise where tradition meet innovation. Yeah, you heard it from the man himself. The sun rises where? Tradition meets innovation. Thank you so very much for watching and thank you for coming through today. And I know like all of our viewers, they're inspired by this conversation and are seeing us as Africans together. Thank you. From the Cliffside Boutique Getaway, this podcast is for all entrepreneurs, leaders and genies who are looking to learn from those who walked the path to success. Thank you so much for your support and stay tuned to more Access Genie. New episodes drop every Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and of course on YouTube. Follow us on social media and share this podcast with your friends and your family so they too can be empowered. I hope you're living with a newfound source of energy to go after that life that you want. Good luck.